Thank you, just, whoa. Man. Thank you, Jessica. Congratulations, by the way, I didn't know. Uh, so it's fun to be able to be here. I do feel like I'm uh, uh, both a friend of the church, and you guys have been great friends to me and Sherry. We enjoy coming down. She is not here. She sends greetings. She's off running around with our grandkids in Denver at the moment. I'll be heading back shortly. Our, our uh, daughter-in-law is going to be graduating from uh, University of Colorado's speech pathology program in a couple of days here. So she went back early to be with our little brood of, uh, of grandkids there. So uh, she's gone. I'm here. I'm thrilled to be here. I don't care if I'm at the men's retreat or whatever else. I'm thrilled you're here. I'm glad you made it to the marathon if that was a problem, but I'm looking forward to the time we have to, to be able to share together here. Taking a look at the book of Psalms, I will be kind of beginning a little mini-series that you guys will be doing the next four weeks uh, regarding the, the, the book of Psalms. So I'll be starting out and I'll be taking a look here at Psalm 27, but also making some broader comments about the book of Psalms itself to kind of set the stage for the things that will, will follow. Um, Psalms are an interesting book. It frequently happens, you know, usually you expect that you should do some, some research and some study and thought ahead of time before you preach a sermon. So I happened to be reading uh, some, some commentaries and some background information on the book of Psalms. And uh, in the early 1900s, the prevailing scholarly opinion was that all of the Psalms were written in the post-exilic time. So you may or may not be up on Israel's history, but Israel went into what's called the Babylonian exile about 586 B.C. It actually took them three times to get it right. So anywhere from 605 to 586, you have like these little mini-series of exiles. Um, And post-exilic time would be after that, so when the nation of Israel is in Babylon. Now, if you've read the Psalms, you'll find all these Psalms that have David in the title, like it's the Psalm of David. And so how in the world David was nine, he was, came to power, I think, in about 1,000 B.C., so 500 years before that. Um, and they just thought, well, people were kind of using that, that title. Um, well, all of that is interesting academic side point, and I wouldn't bring that up just for the sake of boring you, but there was an interesting observation built into why they were so convinced that this was all post-exilic. There was this later literature. Number one, all of the Psalms are so monotheistic. Now, at the time in the early 1900s, late 1800s, uh, the, the whole world had kind of got caught up in the evolution thing. And so part of the thinking about that is you didn't just have biological evol- evolution, you had theological evolution. So you had this gradual development from pantheism and sort of animism to uh, more, you know, polytheism and then finally to monotheism. Well, that's supposed to be happening over the course of this time in, in history. And so all these Psalms, if they were really 1000 BC, are way too monotheistic for it to really match with the prevailing narrative that was going on at that time. The other thing is all these Psalms are like crazy personal. People are talking to God like he would talk back or perhaps crazier yet. They're resenting the fact that he doesn't talk back. I ask you, Lord, how long? Answer me, snap to it. And there's a whole sense about the Psalms of you're thinking God's going to rise and meet you, have a chit chat. And that just seemed inappropriate for this uh, particular time. Well, you know, life has changed and people found all kinds of things ranging from just other interpretations of the Psalms to actually bumping into the Dead Sea Scrolls and discovering that a lot of things they thought couldn't have happened were actually happening and they had kind of 
hard evidence to prove it. But the observations that they made, their interpretation was a little shaky. But their observation about the Psalms was right on, right? Number one, they are very much about this sort of great, big, transcendent, omnipotent, monotheistic God. They, they are psalms to the creation, the one who called the stars into being. There are psalms that David wrote that have said, I look at the stars. They are like huge and big and crazy far out there, and you made them. What is a human being that you're mindful of him? And David's mind is just getting blown by this transaction. Notice what's happening. You have this idea of this monotheistic transcendent God, and then a person is trying to relate to him and trying to figure out how is it you actually give attention. But he says, you really do. Give me that attention. The operating assumption is, yeah, God is crazy monotheistic and transcendent, but he's also wildly imminent, personal, and right here beside me. That is the book of Psalms. Now, As we dive into this, it's interesting to think about this just a little bit more because part of what is being reflected here is this this notion of um, people seeking, desiring, wanting to be in relationship with this God and it frequently not quite going according to plan. So there's a certain amount of tension that people have. And basically all of the Psalms are built around a very similar sort of a thing happening. Something's wrong. They pay attention to this thing. They examine it. And somewhere in the course of doing that, it moves their soul a step closer to God. And so there's this movement from wherever you are to one step closer to God. These are narratives, these are stories, these are blog posts, these are little blurbs of people who have this longing for God, are seeking for God. They're in the midst of some sort of an issue, whatever it might be, and they take that issue as an occasion to move their soul a step closer to the God for whom they long, the God that they are committed to seeking. And I'd like to just stop and pause for a moment about this notion of longing and seeking. If you've read St. Augustine, if you've read C.S. Lewis, to make someone a little closer to the current day and more likely that we've read him, um, you'll find longing is this enormously important concept. Augustine, in his reflections on, on fasting, simply made this wonderful pithy observation that longings make our soul grow deeper. And this desiring for these things that we don't always get. In fact, that we usually don't get. In fact, that we're in turmoil because we haven't gotten. One of the effects of that, it may not be pleasant, but one of the effects of that is the deepening, the broadening, the expanding of our souls. Uh, C.S. Lewis picks up on this. And and Augustine, by the way, is the the person who is famous for saying our, our... souls are restless and they remain restless until they find their rest in thee. So he says, we have these longings, these things that we desire, but those things actually point us to you. And we will never have that feeling of satisfaction or gratification until we find that rest in you. C.S. Lewis picks up this in, uh, in his writings. In fact, it's a major theme in his writings. And because he always says things better than anybody else can say things, let me just read this. Um, he's talking about books and music and things like that that he wo- uh, awake in as some sense of longing for something more. And he says, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we entrust ourselves to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. 
what came through them was a longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshiper. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of the flower that we have not found, the echo of the tune that we have not heard, the news from the country that we have not yet visited. And he's pointing these idea, these longings that are somehow deep in our soul are longings that somehow point us upward to God. Now, with that in mind, if this is the sort of longing that we're talking about in Psalms, it's good to do a little bit of um, expectation clarification. Because once you realize that's the kind of longing, the sense in our soul of something being awoken that only will ultimately find its fulfillment in the person of God, that means that these longings won't be quickly or lightly satisfied. These are lifelong pursuits. They're not there to be satisfied the next morning. This isn't like this thing where you say, oh, I really want that. And then you go, I think they have that at Costco. Honey, let's go to Costco. We can pick up a hot dog and run those cola things while we're there. Yeah, it's not that kind of a longing. It's not something that will have that quick gratification. There is no thing that fits that slot. And all the things we get of that slot are foretastes that are exactly designed to make us want more. In other words, they make the longing worse, not better. It's like, oh, this was so good if I could only have more. And then you get another bite and it's, yeah, and it draws you forward. So in that sense, the longings that we have are like the North Star. By the North Star, you set your heading, but you never set your progress by how close you've come to the North Star, right? You don't say, hey, got to head north. Okay, let's go. So you start walking towards the North Star, and then you check back and say, hey, when we started, the North Star was like 19.4 light years away. How far away is it now? 19.4 light years. Oh, no, it's not working. That's not the point of the North Star. The North Star sets your heading, and you know you're doing the right thing because of the direction that you're heading, not because of how close you've come to the object of your desire. And in effect, this is this image of longing we get with God, where it's like the longing is actually good because it shows us the heading. This is the direction you need to go. Are you planning on getting there tomorrow? Unlikely. Unlikely, right? Now, we as Christians do have the hope that one day our faith will become sight, right? But like the footnote to that verse says, after you're dead. Oh, okay. So long-term project, right? And in the in-between times, between now and then, those longings are there in effect to give you your heading. This is the direction to which you head. Pursue this thing that is the object of your desire because it's a good desire. And you will get the foretaste that will draw you to the next step and to the next step and the step after. But ultimately, this longing will always be for something bigger and grander. The country to which you have never been. The echoes of the song you've not ever really heard. That's the imagery that we have in Psalms. So when you open up the book of Psalms, you're opening up a book of longings. And people's souls that are moving from wherever they are in the direction pointed them by the north star of their longing for God. That's what's going to be happening 
in all of these passages. Um, so psalms and effector are uh, <laughs> woven from a thread of longing. The entire fabric of the book is stitched together from the record of the threads of human longings in pursuit of God. Now, as we look at this in, in the book of David in Psalm 27, um, it, it's a great example of kind of many things that go on in the book of Psalms, and that's why I chose it. So I will spend some time talking about Psalm 27 itself, and then we'll also take some time kind of dialing back and thinking of the bigger picture, because like I say, this is a bit of an overview of things that will come down the road in, in future sermons. Um, and there's basically two things that happen, and this is kind of what happens in every psalm. There is a, a time and occasion of attending, of paying attention to something. And then there is a response. Having attended to this thing in front of me, I have a certain response back to that. Of course, ultimately that movement, that response will be a movement, a movement towards God. But the interesting thing in the Psalms is any crazy thing on planet Earth can be the thing that the psalmist is attending to. So they might be, like I mentioned, David attending to the starry skies, and you're thinking, hey, that's a good thing to get a little glimpse of God from, right? But then you flip the page to the next psalm, and they're ranting and raving about, God, how could you abandon me in my time of need, and crushing babies' heads, and terrible things are happening, and the world's going to end, and you're like, wow, he's having a bad day. Uh, and what does he do? Well, the interesting thing is he finds that as an occasion in which he can see some some vestige of God. And he examines and he looks at it for the glimpse of what do I see of God in this circumstance, be it a good circumstance or a bad circumstance. So in Psalm 27, it's interesting to ask yourself the question, what was the occasion for Psalm? What was David attending to? We don't have to read far to find this. I only had uh, Psalm 27, 7-14 read Um, because I didn't want to take too long with all of the reading. But let me go back and pick up some of the things at the beginning of Psalm, because it's important to see all this as a whole. So in verse 1, David says, The Lord is the light, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? First hint of what he's worried about. Whom shall I fear? Let me keep reading. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see any pattern forming here? We keep reading in this psalm, when the evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. What's David attending to at this moment? His fear. Three times in the first three verses, get the message? He's afraid. It's interesting that Christina was talking about the women's uh, um, series in June on faith and fear. Here it is. And as she mentioned, you know, hey, fear, this is a thing particularly relevant for women. True. Mainly because guys generally like to respond to fear with denial. <laughs> so it's not that we don't have fears. It's just like we try to act like we aren't afraid course the problem that there's certain things out there to be afraid of and I if you're wondering how does Rick know so much about this yeah this is me I don't like fear and when I tend to see it rising up in my heart you know what I do the dead opposite of what David is David saw the fear and here's a way to put it he wasn't actually afraid of his own fear 
but was willing to examine it to find where in the midst of the sphere might I find God. You know, it's an interesting thing. We talk about God's omnipresence. God's everywhere. Psalmists believe that. So if you bumped into a star, they would think, ha, I bet God's there. We should take a look. If you bumped into a joy, they would say, hey, I bet God's there. I think we should take a look. Offer him gratitude. If you bump into a fear, they say, hey, God's there. And I should examine this fear, this condition my soul, to see where it is that points me towards my North Star heading of seeking God. And as I mentioned, I don't like that when it's fear. Denial is really nice. It saves a lot of wear and tear, I'm sure of it. But David models something different here, where he pulls his fear up for examination, fully expecting that he will find markers that move from that fear to the transcendent God because he believes God is literally everywhere and in everything. That's the model that he gives us in this passage. Now, um, it's interesting. (laughs) Here's this, let, let me just tease this out just a little bit more. Here would be an easy way to think about what David and I would argue basically all the other psalmists and all the other psalms do is they basically adopt a revelatory posture towards everything they see in all of creation, all of culture, and all of their own soul. And here's what I mean by a revelatory posture. So the idea of revelation, God's making himself known. But sometimes what happens, the attitude you bring to something keeps you from actually reading that thing in a way that looks like revelation. Let me give you an analogy. You might go to uh, a symphony, Beethoven's Ninth. Um, and you could go to Beethoven's Ninth, ninth and uh, you know, enjoy it as a piece of classical music. But it's possible that some, some cranky guy like me was out in the audience who, I was a chemistry major as an undergraduate. I liked science, by golly. And you're sitting there all in this raptured thing with Beethoven and his odes to joy. Wow, things are falling apart up here. Uh, and his, and his ode, to, ode to joy. And I'm sitting here being scientific. And I said, well, you know what? Those violin strings and the viola strings and the strings on the big, uh, you know, uh, cello and all those things, all that is is a bunch of cat gut. <laughs> Sorry, all you cat lovers, but, you know, foo-foo. Yeah, so anyhow, you have all these cat gut, and you know what they use on the bow to play that instrument? Horsehair. Oh my gosh, all you're hearing is horsehair scraping over cat gut. (laughs) Take that, you classic music foo-foo person. And it's like, wow. So, I mean, that's... True, it is the sound that is made by horsehair scraping over catgut. But it's also Beethoven's ninth. And I have adopted a terrible posture towards listening to Beethoven's ninth because of my prior commitment to giving a good hard facts. Just the facts, man. My name's Joe Friday. I just like to get the, the real bottom line on this thing. And I haven't told it is only cat hairs or cat guts and, and, and horsehair. And you know what you've done? You've refused to adopt a musical posture as you entered the room. You said, I'm going to bring my scientific posture with me. And this is what I mean about the revelatory posture. 
We bump into things all the time in the world that speak of the reality of God behind it. The question is, are you willing to adopt that posture in reading those things? And the problem is that all too often, we refuse to do that. We refuse to read them with a revelatory posture, hoping, actually expecting to find pointers to God hidden in the midst of them. Um, There's a famous poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning that goes, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. It's a wonderful image. You look at this bush and you're like, hey, there's blackberries on it. And, and the whole transaction is, what, you know, what will satisfy kind of my immediate desire? What's right there in front of me? And she says, the whole world's aflame with God. But only those with eyes to see actually take off their shoes and adopt this revelatory posture. And it's wonderful imagery that she gives in that. And that's the exact policy, the ordinary daily policy of the psalmist to adopt this wonderful revelatory openness to whatever God might be saying through whatever it is that he's called into being in the world around you. Now, I'd like to dive into this just a little bit more because I'm so concerned about how practical this is in our actual daily lives. This isn't just a piece of, hey, great information, file that one away, new factoid, good, I've got one more in my little pool. This is an action point. So let me just dive into this a little deeper and think a little bit about how we can enter into that kind of a posture. Some great examples of this actually come from the Puritans. Um, These are a bunch of folks who get some really bad press today because all we can kind of think of is like Thanksgiving and you sit there and wonder, why did they put their belts around their hats? (laughs) Never gotten that about those. So we dismiss these guys. It's kind of like, yeah, who cares? And I'm just telling there is a, a genius to the Puritan mindset on so many levels, and one of the gifts they give is some incredible insight into their devotional lives by means of the journals that they kept. And I'd like to just enter into a couple of these as as a moment of reflection for what is it in the world that we think about revelatorily (laughs) so that it might point us back to God. Let me just give you an example of a person who, in this case, kind of similar to David, did some inward-looking So consider, this is, I I wrote this uh, introduction to kind of Puritan journaling practices, and I'm just going to read this because it's quicker. Um, Consider the journal entry of a Puritan who, as he reflects on his behavior of the previous day, feels compelled to confess my anger at Mr. Newhouse at supper for saying he had eaten all the bread. (laughs) Apparently, Mr. Newhouse chewed down on the last piece of bread before this dude got a bite. Um... (laughs) And also my proud thoughts in that I had prayed in some good sort. So he apparently prayed for the meal before they ate it. And he was kind of full of himself for how well he prayed. That was a good one. (laughs) You hear that, God? Oh, wait, no. Uh, Anyhow, (laughs) he had that that sense of self-awareness. Notice the self-awareness as he reflects on his mealtime prayer the previous day. He realizes he was not attending to the prayer, but rather was preoccupied with impressing the other people sitting at the table. He also realizes his anger when another person at the table finishes the bread. And the author knew that he could ill afford to harbor anger and pride in his heart. How did he have this wonderful discovery? By attending to his own soul. And usually what that meant was at the end of every day, in fact, the Puritans often use this analogy, 
they did a reckoning of the books. The same way if you like work a business today, almost every business literally does this. At the end of the day, they do a reckoning. They, they reconcile the you know, money out and money in and make sure the cash drawers all, all reconcile each other. They do that kind of a reckoning. And the Puritans would do a reckoning with their own soul. They would consider the, business, the soulish traffic that they had had that day. And they would do an accounting And as he began to do that accounting, he noticed something in his own soul. And notice what it did. It moved him towards God. It gave him a heading to get back lined up in his pursuit of God. He says, I can't afford to be angry over things like that. Mr. Newhouse was hungry, and he got to the bread first. Let's just chill out. You'll get a piece tomorrow. Um, I can't afford to have that kind of pride. Here I am praying to God and thinking instead about how I've impressed the people around me. Wow, there's something disordered in my soul. How did he get this wonderful insight? By attending, by stopping to pay attention to it. Second example, in this case, not looking at the inside, but looking outwards at creation. And as you guys know, if you've read Psalms, this is really common in the book of Psalms. But here's an example of Puritan who's doing this. Consider the young Puritan, Robert Blair, who one day looked out the window to see the sun shining brightly and the cow in full udder. As he looked, he was struck by the fact that the sun was made to give light and the cow was made to give milk. And in fact, it looked like that cow needed to give some milk right away or it should be an unhappy cow. So he's looking out the window, looking at the created order around him, and he sees in this something that points him towards God. As he looked out, he was struck by the fact that the sun was made to give light, the cow to give milk, and here were God's creatures in creation fulfilling their appointed purposes. But then a question dawned on him. What is my appointed purpose? And he began to realize how little he understood what God had actually called him to do. And he began a process at this moment of seeking after God's guidance in that area. And notice again what happened. He attended to the created order in a revelatory fashion. He says, these things aren't here by accident. They're here for a reason. One of my colleagues at Biola is in the uh, film, TV film uh, department. And we were watching uh, a clip from some movie together. And she was talking about the colors of the poster that was in the background and, you know, reading some meaning into this. And I'm kind of like, maybe it's just like, the poster that was on the wall. What's the big deal? And she's worked in, in movie and TV production for, for decades. And she's like, Rick, when you walk onto a movie set, there is nothing there. Anything you see through that camera was put there by the producer. You ever think about the world you live in? The Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo? The world was called into being out of nothing by God. Everything you see was put there by the producer. It's laced with meaning. It's meant to point. It reminds you of your heading. And God is there to speak if only we have ears to hear and eyes to see. So this is one of the themes that I think that comes out really strong in here. The example of the, the Puritans is, is worth noting. And partly, I wanted to bring this up, not just because they're good illustrations of it, because of the practice of it, was so much born out of journaling. 
they would intentionally stop to attend, and the way they attended was by their journal. Now, that doesn't mean you have to become a journaler. It's not a bad plan, by the way, but the point here is simply that exercise of attending, paying attention to things that otherwise would just blow right by you in the course of the day. In fact, interesting phrase, uh, the Puritans were busy and active people. To assure they didn't overlook God's providential care in their life, regular reflection and thought was required, and they turned to their journals. The events of the day were not merely recorded, they were inspected, looking for marks of divine activity. They would return in their minds to glimpses of budding flowers in the countryside or personal conversations. They would consider new turns of events or surprising developments to see what God might be seeing. Overall, there was a fear that because of the, get this, because of the busyness of modern life, they would miss the daily hand of God working in and around their personal lives. <laughs> 1643, the busyness of modern life. Every drone is being driven from the hive, you know, and it's just like, wow. So how are we doing at attending? I had an interesting moment this this well a couple of weeks ago now my my son uh, my daughter and son-in-law and two grandkids came out to visit and Levi my grandson is about two years old and we decided oh this will be great we'll take him down to the beach we decided we'd take him down to little uh, little Corona Del Mar beach and go over to the tide pools because tide pools are like crazy cool right um, and there's all kinds of crazy things that are doing nutty things. And I thought, this would be great. Take, take my two-year-old grandson down there. So we, you know, walked down there. We plucked the, the blankets and beach towels out on there. And the tide pools themselves are probably about 150, 200 feet across the beach from where we all sat down. So we get everything out there. And I said, okay, Levi, do you want to come see the tide pools? And he's like, you know, he has no clue what a tide pool is. But he's like, yeah, you know, let's go. So we start to walk across the beach. And all of a sudden, Levi's like, Whoa! there's a rock <laughs> on the beach, you know, so he's got to pick up the rock and expect, it's like, wow, look at this, you don't see this, Opa, you know, and it's like, right, rock, kid, and, and then we walk about three more feet, and you know what was there on the beach? A piece of kelp with a bunch of flies on it. <laughs> Levi's like, whoa, and the flies are buzzing around, he thinks it's like the coolest thing in the world, and then we never made it to the tide pools. <laughs> The world is like a miracle, Grandpa. This is so cool. And I'm like, the miracle is 150 feet away. Would you stop it? <laughs> and we just get so used to the wonderful, crazy, amazing outbreakings of God that permeate every breath we draw, every sight we see, every smell we smell, everything we touch or taste. We... <laughs> We need to learn from my grandson, not me. Because all the world is alive with the revelation of God. The question is, do we have eyes to see? And do we have the will to attend? Now, part one of all this is the attending thing. So we've hit that hopefully clearly now. The other part, the second part is then how do you respond? Because the interesting thing is once you've paid attention... Good news or bad news, right? And as I mentioned in Psalms, sometimes what people are attending to are these terrible things. I've been abandoned by God. Everyone's dying. I've been betrayed. Someone's lying to me, lying about me. There's all kinds of stuff that can move you in any variety of different directions. So the mere task of attending is the first job, but it's not the last job. Because the key thing is how do you respond 
once you have attended. And so let's just look a little bit at what David does in Psalm 27. Um, first of all, his responses of praise. Um, you know, verse, verse 1, um, it's interesting. The very first thing he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And where is David right now? He's in the dark and he's afraid, right? So the first thing he does when he's in the dark and he's afraid is remind himself that God is his light and his salvation. He's the one who meets the need that he has. And this isn't a news flash. I'm sure he could have reported that five years earlier. But the point is he realizes this is, my, this is what I need to be reminding myself of right now. And to stop and to praise God for things that you know are true about him, even if they don't seem like they're true about him right now. I'm in the dark and I'm afraid. But God is my light and my salvation. So that's the first thing that David does is he just begins both with a statement of praise, but this literal calling to mind of this truth he knows about God that really does intersect the moment that he finds himself in in that life. Second thing he does is kind of an exercise in right ordering of his soul. Um, and we find this in verse 4. I love this passage. He's talking about all of his fears um, and all these people who are encamped around him and says, yet I will be confident. Verse 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's an interesting, and it's interesting, it's right kind of in the middle of this, there's kind of two verses of this song, and this is like the middle point of the first verse, where he stops and says, you know what, there's only one thing I ask of the Lord, and that's the thing I'm going to pursue, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I just want to be with God. And in effect, what he does, he calls to mind his first love. He calls to mind his commitment to say, you know, there's one thing, one thing that I long and seek after, and that's to be in the presence of the Lord. And it's a little bit like with marriage, right? It's a good thing when things are, not everything's hunky-dory, and sometimes it may be in your personal marriage relationship, it may be the broader circumstances, but whatever it is, Things are getting a little cloudy and a little murky, and it's really good to stop and remind yourself of your first love. The one thing that I seek, that's what I'm attached to. That's what I will pursue. And you call that first love to mind. And then David goes on and reminds himself of what, <laughs> what I will call his non-options. Um, and again, this is a really good analogy to, to marriage. Um, you may be in a place that marriage isn't as great as you thought it would be or things are being tested or troubled or hardship. You may be in a situation like this in your relationship with the Lord. Um, and, and here's the interesting thing that David does. He says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, and that's what I'm going to seek after. He calls to mind this prayer commitment that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. One thing that I've asked of the Lord that I might dwell in his house forever. So running away is a non-option. Running away from home is a non-option because the one thing I've set myself to do is to dwell 
in the house of the Lord forever. Um, and, and that's marriage too, right? doesn't matter if things are good or bad or whatever. Marriage <laughs> means not option. This isn't time to flee. Um, and this is the sort of picture that David brings to his relationship with God. He says, you know what? I made this commitment that I was going to seek you. I stated that my desire was to live in your house. And no matter what happens, I'm not going to run away from home. I'm going to stay. And then the next thing he does is really interesting. He says, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in this temple. And it's interesting, this perspective is, back to the marriage analogies, it's like he decides, once he's figured out what his non-options are, he decides to devote himself to his options. And I think this is perhaps the most important transition where he says, okay, there's problems, there's issues, things aren't going the way I want them to go, but my non-option is to flee. I'm staying here. So now that I'm staying here, what am I going to do? I'm going to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Uh, I have a friend of mine who uh, talks about this. He has been doing this recently with his wife, I don't want to call it a discipline because it gives this really negative connotation, but they will stop and just stare and look at each other. It says the intention is not a sexual romantic gaze, but rather intentionally a gaze of gratitude to say, thank you, God, for the grace that you gave me in the person of my wife. And just to savor that connection. And, all, you know, they've been married for 30 years. And you can just practically recount all the ways God has given you grace through this person. I'm going to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And then it's interesting, it says, and I will inquire in his temple. Have you ever found that sometimes you inquire of God and then he says what you didn't want to hear? And you think, I wonder if I could go inquire somewhere else. Ever seen the Monty Python, the Holy Grail movie where these guys are up on the wall shouting these, you know, crazy, stupid insults at the guy. And uh, after a while, the guy says, is there someone else up there we could talk to? (laughs) Sometimes it's like that with God. You know, we ask him a question and he gives us an answer that we really didn't want to hear. So we try to repeat it monosyllabic, like in case there was static in the line or something else. Let me repeat this one more time, Lord. This is what I was asking. And then he says the same thing he said before. And then you find yourself going, is there someone else up there we could talk to? And David says, you know what? I'm going to go inquire of the Lord. I'm going to inquire in the temple. My bet is he'd already thought of that. My bet is he'd already tried that. But once he decided that departure was a non-option, he realized that meant his option was to devote himself to what he already had, his chosen commitment to follow and be attached to God. And so he went and inquired in the temple. He gazed at the beauty of the Lord. And he trusted that in the course of events, God would prove to be his salvation. Um, So, 
he does that calling to mind. Verse 8 is interesting as well. He, in effect, uh, in this, this is a passage we read, I just love the statement that includes in it. He's talking about, you know, he's been expressing his fears and beginning to say his confidence in doing this. And then verse 8, he says, You have said, you're referring to God here, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. And it's this beautiful, God is in effect issued this command to David, said, David, seek me. And David stands up, and his response to this bit of revelatory information is, your face, Lord, will I seek. I'll obey. I'll pursue. I will follow after you. That's what I'm going to do. Wow, that's sounding like a really stupid rhyme, isn't it? Anyhow, he just makes that choice and says, yes, Lord, You've commanded me to seek your face, and your face is what I seek. Everything else will have to be ordered around that. And so David brings, in terms of his response to the attending he has, he brings a response of praise. He brings a response of sort of reordering, reattaching his soul. He brings a response of obedience. Um, And by the way, just to kind of put a bow on this thing, By the time you read down to the end, um, you get this interesting closure to this. Where does all this end up heading? Well, verse 14, uh, 13 and 14, I shall look upon the goodness of God in the land of the living. And then he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know what? After all these like wonderful things we're hearing about your perspective on God and hearing him and hearing his voice and this whole, you know, renew that love relationship and all this... I get down to the last verse and I'm like, dang, here's at least a 50-50 chance that when he gets up in the morning tomorrow, he's going to be singing the same song, right? Because he's going to be waiting on the Lord. I thought this psalm was going to like end in bliss. Instead, it ended in the DMV. Wait, (laughs) wait for the Lord. He has taken a trip to the land of eternal waiting, the DMV, and, and here he is. And I would like to point out that things work like that actually quite a bit with God. You know, we, we count seconds. God seems to count eons. And his work in our life is often really slow. I was reminded of this uh, several years ago now. I guess it must have been 15 years ago. Um, where I, This is when I was still a pastor. And there was this uh, lily grant fun thing for pastors could apply for a sabbatical. And I thought, wow, that's a cool thought. I've been a pastor for like 20 years. I've not had anything that even resembles a sabbatical. I've barely had a vacation. At least that's what it felt like. And so I applied and got this sabbatical. So it was a great thing. And I thought, this is a chance for me to take kind of three months off, kind of a mini sabbatical. But nonetheless, it was a real break. And I decided that I would bring along my journals Um, from the last 25 years, because at that point I had basically 25 years of journals that I had kept. And I'm not a compulsive journal, but I do do it regularly. And it was a big stack, so I stuffed all these things in my luggage, and I took off to this spiritual retreat place, and uh, I started reading through my journals at the beginning of this whole sabbatical. I'm about a third of the way through my collection of journals, and I'm like, gee whiz, Rick, you are so whiny. Lighten up, dude. Um, How many times are you going to bring this up? And I realized I was waiting on God. 
and I was getting whiny. And that was only a third of the way through. It didn't get any better. It was painful to read through this stuff. And I realized, wow, God's on a different timetable. And we spend a lot of time waiting. And this was it. So I had that experience. I went and talked to a guy. There was kind of a spiritual director at this place that I was at. And so talked some about these things. And then I was taking a class, a little plug for Regent College up in Vancouver. They have like the world's best summer school with some fantastic one- and two-week classes. So I went up there to take some classes. One of the guys that was teaching one of the classes it was on the early Desert Fathers, but he just mentioned at the beginning of class, uh, he said, look, for whatever reason, I have just heard from people that they feel I have the gift of discernment, and if you want to meet with me sometime, just sign up for office hours. I'm happy to talk if, you know, if you're at a point where you, you would want that. And I thought, hey, this sounds like you know, divine appointment time here, you know? So I signed up for office hours. I'm supposed to meet with them on, on Friday morning. Thursday night, I have a dream. And let me just explain. Did, did I mention chemistry major to you? <laughs> I don't do dreams. They are not on my list of, like, things. They're just, like, dreams. They're, like, too, mm. So anyhow. And God gives me a dream. And I'm like, what the heck is that about? Well, the good news is that I'm meeting with this guy who's, says he does discernment stuff the next morning. So I'm like, well, I thought I was going to talk about this, but maybe we should talk about this first. And we ended up having a good long conversation. And the bottom line was I had been whining and wrestling with God about this whole Puritan Robert Blair cows, udders, and sunshine thing about what in the world am I supposed to do with my life? I was 45. I was a veritable grown-up, actually. Still wondering, what am I really going to do? Still wrestling with God. Well, it turned out that this was a moment in over about a one-year period when I went from being a pastor to ending up teaching at Biola. Um, and after 25 years of whining, suddenly something happened. And it was really interesting as I thought about this, about the value of simply persevering in all these different crazy things that God finally brought to bear after 25 years of singing the same song whose chorus ends... Wait for the Lord. Could we like tune to a different station? But that was the message. And apparently that was the message that I needed to hear. So, let me just close by asking you, encouraging you, exhorting you to attend to whatever it is that's going on in your life right now. Look in your soul at the condition of your soul and see in that things that would point you to God. Look at the circumstances around you. Be they sources of joy and contentment. Read Psalm 23. David writes psalms in response to moments of great contentment. He also writes them in moments of great fear. So whatever's going on in your soul and in your circumstances, use these things as things that rehead you towards God, who is ultimate your longing, the one to whom you're